DJ and PK, it's time to talk basketball now with Steve Cleveland. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Steve, we're about to have uh, Brandon Averett on. He's going to follow you up in the uh, next segment. He is a uh, UVU guard transferring to BYU. He's already transferred from Oklahoma State. Uh, you're a basketball insider. You got any? Uh, you got any inside knowledge on him, his game, how he's going to impact BYU, how he's going to be used? Anything? You know, I, the only thing that I mean, I've had a couple of conversations, and again, uh, he gives you depth at the point guard, um, and, and he does. You know, he's athletic, he's quick, and, and he can create. And the nice, the nice thing is, you know, he's averaged 12 or 13 points a game in the WAC. Uh, he played in the community. He's already lived in, you know, Utah. <laughs> And so the acclimating part of it's going to be real easy. And that's what they've been needing. I mean, they've been trying to find him. I mean, Alex Barcello obviously can play the point, but now he can also play some two. And um, Brandon Aver could be, you know, he can play a lot of minutes at the point guard as well. So it was a piece that they've been trying to get. I know that. And I don't know all the people that they were involved with. But you start looking at it. I mean, for the transfer, you start with Jake Toulson, who had a huge impact. And now you're talking about, you know, Wild Lowell who sat out, and Brandon Averett, who was, who was a grad transfer, and Richard Harward. So there's going to be quite a UVU presence there. I mean, four of those players are all going to play significant minutes. So it's, it's a need they had. It was probably uh, – I know they were looking at a lot of other people, but this one they probably had in their back pocket all the time. And knowing that, if, you know, if we couldn't get this, or, you know, whoever they were trying to get, uh, he, he's going to be a nice addition. And he doesn't have to adjust to a coaching staff. He knows half the team, uh, and he's living in a town that he's already you know, played in. So the transition will be pretty smooth. I was thinking about Mark Pope and his desire to just seems like he's chasing just about every grad transfer that's out there. And I was wondering, you know, is that the way to go? Because, you know, you, first year to second year, it's going to be a drastically different team with all the seniors. And then you've got a couple of seniors that you've already recruited, and they're going to be gone next year. But then I thought, well... That's really the way of the world at BYU because of the mission program. You got guys coming and going, guys who say, no, I'm not going. Then they get in that environment, and then they decide they are going to go. You know, Kamar did that. I think you were the coach at the time. So you're yeah. just juggling guys left and right. So really, this is just par for the course if you're going to be a BYU coach. No, there's no question about that. And, and we found that out pretty early when we were there. And I don't, I don't think – I think probably when we came in, transfers were just an absolute must because there was really not a team there. And But we, we learned very quickly that junior college transfers – you know, and we didn't have grad transfers back then. That wasn't part of the, of the equation. But we, we knew that as young men would leave high school and go right on missions that, you know, they're gone two years – and then it takes at least another year for them to get situated that we had to be able to fill in the holes and fill in the blanks. And I, and I think that's what Mark's doing. So I, I, I think with the, you know, if, if in fact a year from now the transfer portal becomes a situation where they don't even have to sit so you get a freebie, man, that even enhances. And, and the, the nice thing is that, the, for a, like we've talked about this before, but you're talking about great facilities, great fan base. There's a, you know, they've had a great history here over over the years. Had a lot of success. Uh, I think the the university and this coaching staff have done amazing stuff with social media and, and uh, promoting the program. 
So I, I think the transfers are going to be a part of this program for a long time. And as long as and again, the mission isn't going away. Uh, so when you have, I think this year they've got three young men going on missions that they signed. They'll come back and they'll get involved in the program. And, and, and you know, Pat, you know, you've been in my office before. We would we'd sit yeah. down and you put that depth chart out. It'd go out eight, nine years. Yeah. You know, I mean, eight or nine years. And, and you go, know, yeah, well, he's going to come here and this is what's, what's going to happen. So, uh, you know, someone like Brandon can come in for a year, give them the help they need, and somebody else pops back in. You know, they've got, I think Hunter Erickson got off his mission uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. Uh, they didn't have a lot of kids coming off missions, but they got all the pieces they need for this year, I think. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, I, you know, and I, we talked a little bit about Caleb Lohner last time, but they've, they've, got, ten, they've got nine or ten guys that are pretty solid and, and, and they're versatile and guys can play multiple positions. But certainly that UVA, the UVU presence really helped Mark and his staff because they had relationships with those guys. And they're going to all be impact players. Every one of those guys is going to be an impact player in the program. I think, but I don't know, that all transfers aren't created equal. I think when you have to sit out a year, it gives you a chance to get in the program, you know, build relationships with coaches and with teammates, absorb the system and all that, and kind of get into the flow and build some chemistry. When you have a grad transfer, or if they change the rule here and guys are just coming in, that seems like an enormous challenge if you don't have a core of guys who are in the program year to year. What do you think about that balance of transfers versus guys who are in a second or a third year on on the team? There's no question that is really important. And and, and if they're they're sitting and they're just coming in, and and whether they're coming for a year or two or three, uh, I think one of the things that Mark and his staff and everybody, and you know, and it's part of kind of the culture of this program is they they talk a lot about the locker room, and uh, you know, I'm you and I aren't in the locker room, but I think one of the things that having those five or six seniors last year, they were able to create an environment in the locker room, and, and that's something they talk about all the time. I mean, that that's part of who they are, and I think when you're going to bring in transfers. You need to have a core group of guys who understand what the expectations are, and it's it's really helpful that you're, you're better players. And I'm looking right now at, at at a core group of guys, and while though you know he Gavin Baxter's been he's going to be in the program, Richard Harward is going to be in there for a couple of years. Uh, you know, you got some guys that are in the program that were actually part of the UVU program, so the transition has been easier over time. That is definitely something you have to pay attention to. Uh, because when you bring people in, and, and the other issue is this, is that sometimes we can make mistakes, and, and sometimes you miss on guys. Sometimes guys get hurt. Sometimes they don't play out or plan out. And especially when you get, you know, they've got a couple of junior college guys here. There's Spencer Johnson from Salt Lake City. you got Gideon George. You know, Gideon George is an athletic long guy that can help him defensively. You know, Spencer Johnson, all of a sudden now, Brandon Averick probably comes in and takes some, some minutes. Does Caleb Lohner come in as a freshman? Is he good enough to come in here and play minutes? So the challenges that you have when you bring in transfers, you basically are making a commitment to them. You're letting them know where they kind of fit in the program. But when things don't work out and guys don't pan out or they don't play as well as they can and somebody else comes in, then, then you get the reverse effect of transfers where people start leaving and, you know, and all of a sudden – it's not the knight in shining armor. So you have to manage that. You have to manage that, and uh, and you can have too many people. And the hardest thing to manage 
is when you go in at BYU, for me, was when we would go in and we would recruit a freshman and they would go on a mission for two years. And then in the meantime, we brought in junior college guys or other players. And when those, when those young people got back into the program, they weren't ready to play. They weren't competitive enough. And, and consequently, at times, those, they would leave because there wasn't an opportunity to play. So you, you have to continue to go forward and recruit at BYU. And, and transfers right now seem to be the best option that they have to fill in the blanks when, when young people go away on missions. Uh, but it can be managed, and it was always – it took you know, you have staff meeting, you sit down there, and you go through this chart, and you start looking at what's going to happen the next seven or eight years. But that being said, as much as you thought it was going to play out that way, seldom did, it ever, did that ever happen because people do leave. And sometimes people get into a program where they realize, hey, you know what, this is a place I really wanted to go, but they've got two or three people at my spot who are really good players. I want to go somewhere where I can play. It's not a matter of, of, of coaches bringing in four guys at the same position. It's just a matter sometimes that guys don't develop like you think they're going to develop, and, and there is a little bit of guesswork. There's not a lot of guesswork on transfers. We know, they know, Brandon Averett scored 12.8 points a game, played minutes at Oklahoma State. He's kind of a sure thing. It doesn't matter. Uh, they've seen him up close and personal. They know he can come in and help Alex Marcello, who will probably play the one and two. You got Connor Harding. You know, now all of a sudden, oh, you know, Wyatt Lowell ends up playing some three. The, the lineup looks like you're looking at it going, okay, this thing is really solid. And I think there's a, they do have a few seniors, but they, they've got a lot of underclassmen as well. I can't remember if I asked you or if we asked you about this, so if I have, forgive me, but I'm gonna, I want to get your thought on it now. This loner kid, you brought him up a couple of times, so obviously you know about him, and I know you talked about him because you had an opportunity of uh, meeting him and his, I think his folks, you told us. But what do you think about a coach being, I don't want to say under an obligation, but whatever it might be in terms of, like for Larry at Utah, to release the kid? What... What is your thought on releasing a player uh, in this situation? Well, you know, and that's going to change differently with every person. I, and, and I don't know any of the circumstances. I, I was actually surprised, and we did talk about this, uh, that, that Caleb went to Utah. Uh, but I do believe it was during the transition with Coach Rose, and uh, and there were some unknowns about who would come in and coach and what the circumstances are. But that being said, I always kind of felt like Caleb Loner was probably, you know, just based upon my conversations, he was going to BYU. His dad played there. seemed to be kind of a natural thing. I think the one thing as a coach, and, I, you know, if I am, I'm in Larry's situation, and, uh, you know, you're always trying to do what's best for the kids, but you have to do what's best for the program as well. And that, that hurts the University of Utah. And, 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 the, and I think the question you have to ask yourself, how, how did this happen? What were the circumstances? What's the situation? What's it driven by? How did this, how did this all come about? Well, when you're the head coach and you're losing a player, you're going you're to want to find out every situation and circumstance that went on. Why did, why did this happen? What are the circumstances? What was involved? And, and, and then you're, you're going to make it. To, they can't replace Caleb Lohner. That's the thing. They're, they're not going to. It's too late to replace him. If if he was in their plans this year to play significant minutes, you know, you you can understand why a coach or a coaching staff would be upset about losing a guy. And whatever the circumstances were, maybe he just changed his mind and decided I want to go to BYU. 
whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It, it makes it really difficult. Right now, it seems that the culture in the country is when this happens, people just let them go. The, the culture with transfers, you know, the fact that we're going to probably see here within 12 months, you can now transfer to a different school and, and not have to sit out. So that whole environment has changed. I mean, for me, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm the coach that's losing a, a, a four-star guy that can probably come in and score 12 or 13 points, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to be, you know, angry. I mean, this is my livelihood. This is our program. We're counting on this guy. Uh, but then again, you don't want someone in your program that doesn't want to be there. And so uh, if, if I had heard that, you know, and I read something recently this week that I don't think Larry was real supportive of releasing him, but whether this is true or not, but the word on the street was kind of the athletic director stepped in and said, Dana, we're not doing that. If kids don't want to be here, just release them. So I don't know what happened, but I can certainly understand how Coach Krasoviak could feel and that's the sense that it hurt his team. And you know what? This is not right. It's not fair. And I can also understand as an athletic director, maybe stepping in and going, listen, we, we can't go there because it, it could happen to us and somebody decides to come our way. I, I don't know. I mean, I know how I would feel if I was Larry, and I know how I would feel if a really good player, and I was at BYU, Mark Pope said, hey, this kid's coming. You know, it just depends where you're – the perspective is whether you're the coach losing a guy or getting him. But uh, I, I, it wouldn't have surprised me if they told me, hey, they're not releasing him. This – there was something going on here, and whatever the circumstances might have been, I, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. That's the way it is. You'll have to sit. But it doesn't sound like that's what's going to happen. The athletic director seems like he stepped in. and but So I, I understand all the feelings and the emotions that come into that from both, both sides. And uh, I, I'm, it, that's part of the rules. That's what you do when you sign somewhere. You, you sit out. And, but, the again, it, it's the – the landscape of college basketball is changing. And, and, and for really, to be honest with you, the, the young people, the, their, their rights are more protected now. I mean, they can go and transfer and possibly not sit out in a year from now. That protects them. They make mistakes. And um, they're kind of like free agents. And, uh, but a, a letter of intent and a commitment has to mean something. However, I do understand circumstances sometimes do change. And, uh, and and decisions like that are going to be made. But it's a tough deal, you know, depending on what side of it is. Is he really happy or not very happy at all? And I think for Coach Kosoviak, they're looking for shooting. They needed a guy that could, could score from the perimeter. They'll, you know, I think they lost the one kid anyway. So this, is, has, this has to hurt a little bit. Got to sting. This has been trending for coaches for a while, but this just kind of underlines it. So, number one, you've got to be – really in tune with what all of your players are thinking. And number two, you you really got to be a psychologist or your program's going to empty of talent really quickly. Yep. Like, I completely agree. And I, and I think being transparent, you know, you go to, you go in recruiting and when you're recruiting, you're putting your, you know, your, your best foot forward. You're showing all the wonderful things about our program. You, you, I don't think you can go in and recruit now and not show a young man or a young woman in recruiting what their role is going to be, where we see you developing, where we see you at. And then you're having that conversation in the home, on the, on the visit. Here's what we see happening in circumstances and situations. Well, things happen. You know, all of a sudden, you know, an all-high school All-American who's been, 
you know, at UCLA decides he want you know he wants to come to University of Utah or BYU or whatever. Those things do happen. There are surprises, but you have to constantly be having those conversations, and and they have to be transparent and they have to be very open. And and, and I think that to be successful in this day and age, you have to be a great communicator, and you got to be able to communicate with the parents and the the high school coaches and everybody associated with that young man being very honest, knowing that sometimes it's not going to work out. But don't let it be because you never had a conversation. Don't let it be because uh, we weren't being truthful or honest or we just wanted to, uh, you know, we wanted to have, instead of having three wings, we, I mean two wings, we, we decided we needed a third one. I don't think you can overstock anymore because as soon as a young man sees he's not going to play, they're going to leave, you know, and, and not necessarily after a year. But if somebody's in a program for a couple of years, it, it, of course you should leave. If you're there in a program two years and you're not playing, and even though you like the school, but basketball is really important to you, you've got to really consider a transfer, finding a place. And because circumstances do change and the landscape of recruiting is so up and down that you, programs can get really good players when they didn't expect to get a player, and, and how can you not play a guy that decides he wants to come to your place? So it's it's complicated, and it's you have to. But you're right, Dave. You, you you have to stay on top of it. You have to constantly be talking to everybody involved. You can't assume anything, and and you got to have a sense and a feel for parents and those kind of things. And I remember, I mean, I remember having conversations, and I mean, it was for us things were changing so rapidly. And, and, and they, it, it, that's not what's happening here. I mean, our situation was so unique that we were trying to just get people to come into the program initially. And then all of a sudden we started getting good players. And some of the guys that were there could see that their role was going to change. And so we, we had to sit down and say, listen, here, here's the circumstances. And you haven't done anything wrong here. And we're not taking a scholarship from you. But... It's you know it's a, it's a situation. If you want to really play, you you probably need to go somewhere else. But that wouldn't have been after two months, or or a semester. It'd be more than likely after a year or two, where you give a guy a chance, every chance you can. And uh, so those those are hard things, really hard things. And there's a lot of pressure on everybody to be successful. I think you know the loner thing to me. Uh, uh, I kind of understand it, but he, here's a situation where I think BYU was a place he really was thinking about going, coaching chains, things happen, and then he sits there and watches BYU kind of have a special year, and in, in his heart he's saying, man, that's where I really want to be. Uh, should he be accountable, held accountable for that decision? Uh, yeah, there will be people that would tell you that he should be held accountable for that decision. You make a commitment, you stay with it. There are others that say, you know what? This is a free world, and uh, I want to go with the best going to help me in my situation and circumstance. So there's an argument on both sides. Uh, but when you're on the side of losing a really good player, uh, it hurts your program. Not sometimes, not just for a year, but a year or two, because you passed on guys that you normally would have taken. Now you got to go back and find those guys through a transfer portal or uh, a junior college guy. Steve, as always, we appreciate it, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. All right, fellas. Have a great week. Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joining us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Brandon Averett, BYU senior guard, the grad transfer from UVU, will join us next right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.
And now, attention, top of the wire. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Ohio State players, football players, and their parents were asked to sign an acknowledgement of risk waiver regarding COVID-19 before returning to campus for voluntary workouts last week. A.D. Gene Smith later said that it's a pledge and not intended to address liability. Cleveland Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield plans to kneel during the national anthem this upcoming season to support protests of social injustice, police brutality, and racism. Mayfield, in comments made on social media, said, if I lose fans, that's okay. I've always spoken my mind. That's from the heart. Donovan Mitchell, Kyle Kuzma, Jason Tatum, among the players reportedly interested in insurance policies to cover them in case they are hurt. All were in the members of the 2017 rookie draft class. They are all eligible for extensions at the end of the season and expected to get max extensions or big money extensions. Season scheduled to resume in Orlando July 30th. Top of the Wire is brought to you by Zero Res. A clean home is a healthy home, and right now Zero Res is cleaning carpets for $33 per room. Plus, schedule three rooms, and they'll clean your fourth for free. Call Zero Res today to schedule your cleaning at 801-288-9376. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. We're going to talk with Brandon Averett in just a second. Transferring from UVU to BYU, PK. Saw a story that happened over the weekend, just caught my eye now. And not far from where you grew up in New Jersey, Boonton, about a mile from Parsippany. Looks like it's about 10 miles from Storage. And a 97-year-old, James Misioni, passed away. His relatives had no idea he had been collecting baseball cards his whole life and has more than 1,000 vintage baseball cards in the attic. The collectibles expected to fetch up to several million dollars at auction. Wow. Right? So you may not be a big baseball fan, but just listen to some of the cards he has. You may may not be a collector, but somehow you you know, like a 1969 Topps Super Rookie Reggie Jackson card graded Gem Mint 10 out of a possible 10 has got to be worth some money. A 1965 Pete Rose card has to be worth some money. A Jackie Robinson card from 1949 has got to be worth a little money. A 1933 Lou Gehrig card and a 1933 Jimmy Fox card signed signed by Gehrig, signed by Fox, got to be worth a little money. Also, and this is the one that has everybody's just, just blowing. If your mind isn't already blown, this is what does it. The most desirable card in his collection is a signed, think about this, a signed Babe Ruth card from 1933, which will probably sell for six figures, over 100 grand. And Uncle Jimmy had, not to go LeBron on here, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five. He had six of them all Hand signed by Babe Ruth. 
And this guy had it all in the attic, and nobody in his family had any idea. Hmm. From Booten. Booten literally was within walking distance of where I grew up. It was right down the street. And it is where Charlie Weiss got his first coaching job in 1979 at Booten High School. He was an assistant. So, yeah, obviously an Italian right down the road. I actually collected a lot, and my mother put them all in a folder. And I've got the folder. I can see it right here. And I've thought about taking it in to see what I could get for them uh, because I've got a number of cards. I mean, I don't go back to Babe Ruth. (laughs) I've got all all the players when I was a kid I've got. Well, going back to Reggie Jackson, rookie card, that's over 50 yards. That's 51 years now. You got anything in that range? That'd be an awesome range. Well, if I do... In a related note, I'll be announcing my retirement soon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I got Bob Gibson. I got Pete Rose. Jerry Grody. Bill Sudeikis. Nolan Ryan. I got a Nolan Ryan card that's in mint condition with him in a Mets uniform. You should get those. You should get those. uh, Tom Seaver. Jerry Kuzman. I got all the Mets here. Uh, Eddie Cranepool. What, what a first baseman. What is that? Uh, that was a great name for my youth right there. Tug McGraw in, Met, oh. in a Mets uniform. Nice. What is that? Uh, oh, it's an antique show. That road show on PBS. My mother-in-law used to love that thing. It was always on. Yeah, Antiques Roadshow. Antiques Roadshow. Yeah. yeah. Did, would they do baseball cards? Or has sure it got to be like an antique drug? I'm sure it'd have to be back to yeah, some, Mantle, Babe Ruth, that yeah, era. Some, better than Cranepool? Probably. You got some good <laughs> ones, though. Gibson, that, I mean, Gibson, that's... Gibson and Rose, I guess what, what year, Rose, the 60s would be more valuable than the 80s. He yeah, I got one here. She actually, now that I look at it, it looks like she put them together by teams because mm-hmm. I just flicked over to the Pirates. I got Willie Stargell, Roberto Clemente. I got two Roberto Clementes. Yeah, flip over to the Pirates. Three Roberto Clementes. Wow, you do need to Manny get that. Manny Sanguin. Nice, Manny. He was, uh, you know, it's too bad he played in Johnny Bench's era because Manny Sanguin was great, but, you know. You're not Johnny Bench. I mean, what are you going to do? I got a Pete Rose one. Outfield. Well, flip over to the Padres here. I want to hear about Chris Cannizzaro and Ed Spezio. I mean, who you got? Pete Rose, uh, let's see, 1970. I don't know that I get. Two-time Major League batting champ, Pete Rose. Sixth year of hitting 300 or more. So this would have been in 1971. Look at this, man. I got – and it's and it's in a, it's in a nice uh, – uh, thing where you put them in, like like you'd put in photos. Yeah, and they're and set up. Yeah. yeah, and it and it's just the exact length. I got Johnny Bench. You speak of Johnny Bench, he's making a catch, and I am in the freaking money. You are, baby. Pedro Borbone. I love Pedro Borbone. All right, Padres, you asked for it, buddy. Yeah, let's go. I got it. Who you got? Who do you got? Let me hear. Let me hear yeah, the name. Here we go. Let's Let do this hear. thing. Hold on. Wait a minute. I'm closing my eyes. I'm seeing it was San Diego Stadium before it was the Murph, before it was Qualcomm. And there's no bleachers underneath the scoreboard. They had, like, uh, some kind of plants and stuff there. All right. Go ahead. Hit me. First one is Tom Dukes. Pitcher. Yes, uh, 1969 or 70, I think. Well, it would have been the same era, yeah. obviously. I th- Bill McCool. How about that name? Ooh, very cool. Frank uh, Reberger. I know you would know Clay Kirby. Clay Kirby uh, was the man. Got traded to the Reds and actually had a year, big year or two. Hurt his arm. Clay Kirby, yeah. 
He was a Padre star in the early days. And you could lost tell like me five. Tw- lost like twenty games though. If you look, if you, you got couldn't tell me five Padres now. Yeah, probably not. Uh, Walt Heinrich, Heinrich, catcher. Uh, Bob know. Barton, yes. Clarence okay. Gaston. I didn't know Clarence. That. Don't call me Cito Gaston. He uh, was first Padre to hit three hundred. I think. I thought Tony Gwynn was. No, he was not the first Padre. <laughs> okay, so seriously, this I weekend, he was the only one. This weekend, I was bouncing around on the web, and there, there was a list of uh, you know to have all these lists, right? You got to click on these sideshows, slideshows, and go through a million ads. But the list was the best nine for every Major League Baseball franchise, ranked from worst to first. Right, so your all-time team, you know, the Yankees can, you know, have Aaron Judge and Babe Ruth. Right, it doesn't matter the era. So I click on it. Who's going to be the worst team of all time? I click on it. Padres. We could barely fill this out. Gene Richards in left field. I'm like, ah, I'm not even going through this list. This is Who was the first one to hit 300? I thought Cito Gaston was. I think he hit like uh. 311 or 318 or something. I don't know what it was. I mean, it wasn't a huge number, but for the Padres, it was a big deal. I mean, they sucked, and so everything got trumped up. I mean, they were just oh yeah, nineteen seventy, he had four hundred and eight, uh, five hundred and eighty-four abs, and he hit three eighteen. Three eighteen. There you go. Yeah. Which is and way he was better the, than his career average of two seventy nine. And he was the only three hundred hitter for a long time. I want to say somebody did it before Gwynn, but maybe not. I'd have to go back and look. There were not a lot of. I mean, they were bad. They were really bad for a long, for most of my youth. Well, he had a phenomenal season in 1970. He had 20, 29 home runs, 93 ribs. Yeah, there's a funny story about him and uh, Ollie Clarence. Brown was a was another, hit, and then they could really hit. The team hit pretty well, and I think Nate Colbert led the National League in home runs that year. But when they go to the Nate bullpen, Colbert. yeah, when they go to the bullpen. There was a story Cito Gaston told when he was the Toronto manager, and because he managed them when they went to the World Series and won it, and he said, "Yeah, I used to look over at Ollie, and Ollie look at me and like, get ready to run, guys. Here comes the bullpen. We're going to be in the gap chasing stuff down. <laughs> they just, they score a bunch of runs and then give up a bunch. Nate of runs Colbert hit thirty eight home runs, only eighty six ribbies though, two fifty nine in nineteen seventy. Because I got Nate Colbert's baseball card oh, yeah. right here, and that was before they put in the inner fence. He was hitting those over a 17 The outer ball. fence? It was the outer fence. Yeah, How about that, Yuck? It was the outer fence. Isn't that what a home run normally? <laughs> the seventeen. They had a seventeen foot wall there until they put in a uh, an eight foot fence inside of it, so you could have dramatic catches and more homers. Uh, I used to manager? go. Used to go to what? Who's the manager of the Padres? Now uh, they just changed. I don't remember. I didn't ask you. Yeah, I don't. I don't I remember asked you who it was. I don't. Who remember. Who was the manager then? Who who got who got run? Who was uh, the manager? The guy who went to Colorado. I can't remember his name. Don Baylor. Wait, what? Don Baylor went to Colorado. He managed Colorado. No, 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 no. The the I thought you wanted to know the pod. Bud the, Black. Is who? Yeah, Bud about? Black. Thank you. No, no. Who's the manager? And Bud Black wasn't the manager in 1970. What are you talking about? Oh, the the Padre manager in 1970. Yes. Uh, I thought you were making fun of me for not knowing who it is now. In 1970, it was um, Preston Gomez, maybe. Preston Gomez. Yeah. Okay. I just wondering who the manager was. I, I once knew a guy told me he played in the big leagues for the Angels. I asked him who was his manager. He said he couldn't remember. <laughs> you're, you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a sign. 
If you can't remember your own manager, that's an issue. Bob Gibson. I got Bob Gibson's baseball card. You man. should go. You should go get those appraised. I mean, they're not going to be worth several million, but that's you've got some big names there. It's worth something. Yeah, I was huge into that as a kid. As I tell you, I didn't watch a lot of television. This is this is what spent most of my time. Well, oh, I got Willie Mays. I got Willie Mays right here. Outfield, Willie Mays, Bobby Bonds, Willie McCovey, Dick Dietz, Chris Arnold. I, re- I know I got Chris Arnold because when I was a kid at spring training, I got his autograph. My father made me go get Willie McCovey's, and McCovey just kind of blew me off. Oh, and, really? and Chris Arnold was coming up the stands in Sun City. Yeah, they walked through the stands to get to the parking lot, and uh, Willie McCovey was like about the fifth or sixth inning. And, man, he seemed like he must have been, like, 40 feet tall to me as a kid. <laughs> and uh, he just walked through the stands. And my, my father, go get his autograph. I, said, I don't want his autograph. Go get it. Go get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, the giant of that era who uh, had a reputation for being kind of uh, hard to deal with. But, you know, you get him later in life and, you know, it's a different deal. Uh, when I was in Sacramento, Orlando Cepeda came through town doing... I don't know what he was pumping. There was something. And so I go out to interview him and I end up taking him. We meet at this batting cage. And he gives, and Orlando Cepeda is giving me hitting tips on the air. And probably from picking up a bat that was too heavy for me when I was really young, it rested too much in my palm instead of out of my fingers. And he assessed that immediately. It's like, that's sitting too deep in your hand. Move the bat out of your fingers. That feels weird. Yeah, just do it. Immediately, screaming line drives all over the cage. <laughs> made the bat so much faster. I'm looking at him seriously. My eyes are big. I'm like, I can't believe this. And he's just smiling and nodding like, yeah, I played in the major leagues. I know a few things. <laughs> and it, seriously, he watched me swing like not even 10 times, maybe three or five times. It was so quick. He said, change this. Oh, you're going to be much faster with the bat. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Man, if only he would have given that to you earlier. Who knows? <laughs> right? Well, I still had to learn to hit breaking stuff. That probably would have been a problem. Well, you could have got Tony Gwynn could have helped. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> one one earlier lesson and one more lesson. I'd have been sad. I got a baseball card of Lou Brock. He's in the Hall of Fame. Lou Brock. That was a different era when running the bases mattered. Oh, you don't just man. get on base and then wait for some guy to hit a three-run homer. You got to get. Oh, no, you move the runner along, man. Play the game, small oh, yeah, ball. Yeah, he was all about it. Lou Brock. Uh, I don't know how many bases he stole, but it was a lot. And he had some big seasons. All right, well, Brandon Averett, despite multiple texts and phone calls, is not answering the phone right now. Yach will try to reschedule him. Yach, make the magic happen. Yach is nodding. Magic will be happening. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We are brought to you in part by Larry H. Miller, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, and Sandy. Find your deals online at LHMDeals.com. PK, you're going to make a trip back to New Jersey and uh, see about that auction. I got an Ernie Banks card that I'm holding in my hand. Your collection is getting better and better with every passing minute. Ernie Banks, man, first base Cubs. Bob Barton isn't going to get much done for you, but that Ernie Banks card, the Bob Gibson, Pete Rose, Lou Brock, Willie Mays, you got some winners there. Yeah. Search for Hank Aaron during the break, see if you can find him. That'd be another good card to have. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. And it's all over almost here. Don't go nowhere. 
DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Time for the feedback of the day. Brought to you by Audi Salt Lake City, where you can pick up a new Audi Q5 SUV for only $359 per month. Visit Audi Salt Lake City at 999 South State or AudiSaltLakeCity.com. Uh, we're getting a lot of feedback off the uh, multi-million dollar secret in the attic. People are blown away by that. <laughs> they are just blown away that this 97-year-old grandpa was sitting on a half a dozen autographed Babe Ruth cards. And that's just the, just the tip of it. I mean, he's basically got, he's got everything. I mean, Lou Gehrig? Autograph, Jimmy Fox autographed. I mean, he's just crushing it decade after decade. So we're getting a, we're getting a ton of feedback about that. People are uh, really excited about that. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the NBA players, some of whom want to play, some of whom don't seem to want to play. How will it all shake out when they start playing July 30th? Uh, Dwight Howard was saying, you know, this is not the moment to be playing basketball. It'll distract from what's going on, and the social justice issues are more important. You've got other players who think that by playing, they're on the stage, and they can make their point. They can earn money. They can donate to causes, and they'll be on the stage to say whatever they want to say. Austin Rivers with that line of thinking. Aaron tweets at us, frankly, I don't care if they finish this season at this point. I'm starting to not really care about next season either. Why? He doesn't go into why. <laughs> Too much politics, not enough basketball, or you get away from it, you break the habit. I don't know. Can you break the habit in three months, well, there's though? there's zero basketball right now. I know. But I know. It's not the player's fault. Well, I get that there's two different things here. I mean, there is a contingent of fans that all politics and social issues aside feel like the momentum of the season is lost. Playing without a home court isn't the same thing. The yeah, but that's not next asterisk. season. That has nothing to do that's with That's not season. next season. You're right. The next season thing, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't explain himself. We could guess what he's thinking, but he doesn't explain himself. And, and it's the whole idea of politics and all. I mean, how do we know back when there – wouldn't have been stuff. It's just there wasn't social media that's so available now that you can well, see everything. Sure, you're right, but you can go back. I mean, Muhammad Ali, it was very political. Obviously you know, he, he was. was uh, I'm just talking about more widespread. Yeah. But there were definitely people who rooted for him against him based on his, uh, you know, his willingness to go to prison and lose his heavyweight title instead of going and fighting Vietnam. That brought some people to him, and that you know, other people didn't like that. Mm. They but turned over into time, Fraser I think fans. he was universally viewed as a hero. Oh, over time, I think he was. Yeah. Over time, that definitely worked for him. But in the moment, in the late 60s and early 70s, it divided people. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. But over time... I'm just counting up all my money for my cards. I don't care. <laughs> are you, you going to get them assessed, or are we going to come back in a month and you still haven't done it? Well, I don't know if I'm going to do it this month, but I've always thought that at some point, what's the point of having them? Yeah. Because I've got two big folders of baseball cards. Harmon Killebrew, I've got. Frank hey. Robinson. Harmon Killebrew, Idaho's yeah. finest. And then I've got uh, I've got a smaller one of football, and then I've also got a bunch of basketball ones. As I said, I have Jerry Sloan's basketball card. I know a place in Orm that could do it you know, for you. It's PK. funny you mentioned that. I think Harmon Killebrew was in studio uh, when I did the show with maybe Clowkey or maybe Gordon or Booner. I, I got to talk to them. I'm pretty sure he came through if I'm remembering that right. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But it was oh, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, it was before you and I. I remember the room. If it, if, uh, I'm pretty sure it was him. I got a Jerry West basketball card. A Rick Adelman basketball card. 
They don't tend to be worth as much as baseball cards, but they still be worth something. Gail Goodrich. Man, my mother did a lot of work. On yeah, this. clearly. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Hands and Scotty are coming up next. Stay with us.